0: Live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California, and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to The Water Zone Show this evening. All right, a pleasant afternoon, everybody, and welcome to The Water Zone Show. I'm Rob Starr. Usually I stay along with Mr. Chris Davey, but Mr. Davey is out of the country right now. Uh, He's not hiding, he's not uh, running away from the law, he's doing his job, uh, and he's at one of our factories in Germany with some customers, so he'll be returning this weekend. Anyway, uh, we'll still have a great show. We have the most wonderful news person for California News, and here she is. Uh, You guys can't see her, but I can. (laughs) I'm waving to her right now, Miss Chris Austin, who is the purveyor of Maven's Notebook. Chris, welcome today, and I understand it's warm where you are up in Central California.
1: Oh, yeah, well, it's it's warm up here in Chico, 102 degrees, uh, but I hear it's even worse down where you are in Arizona. How high? Yeah, it's 118
0: today. Ooh. But, that sounds you know, brutal. You know, I thought that when I first moved here, but you know what? It's it, You get used to it, and it's a dry heat, and we get we get a nice wind going every day and in the afternoon, and uh, everybody's got air conditioning, in their house, in their cars, they got a pool. So a lot of shopping malls. My wife can contest at that. And uh, she stays cool all the time. <laughs> so <laughs> that's the way she Oh, it. yeah. Yeah,
1: you keep telling yourself that. Yeah, yeah, dry heat, not so bad. Yeah, all right, uh-huh. But, yeah. yeah especially
0: uh, especially uh, the, but, the FedEx and UPS trucks come in here every half hour and a half hour dropping stuff off for my wife. Go but. Well, if it's not humid, it
1: it is better. I feel for our uh, fellow, uh, you know, Americans sitting out there in the middle part and the eastern part and the broiling temperatures. You know, at least at least we are set up for it. It's harder when you're not set up for it. So my sympathies to everyone
0: who's broiling. Oh, absolutely! Um, Texas is pretty hot as well. Florida, so I mean, it's uh, well, actually.
1: Happy. Yeah, we're we're kind of focused here on here in the U.S., but uh, this same heat wave is also in in Europe and in the, you know the Middle East and and so we're we're not alone. This is actually a a worldwide phenomenon. So, uh, well, it's,
0: um, uh, let's see. Eight, Chris is eight hours ahead of us, so it's like a little after midnight where he is, and I did not think he'd want to stay up to call in. So. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, you know, and and he's probably hot there in Germany too cuz they're like I said it's in Europe. So, you know, when you don't have the humidity, it, it makes it a little bit more tolerable, but uh yeah, the the temperatures are hot and uh that really changes things out on the landscape. Changes how much plants, um, how much water plants take up. Uh changes evaporation rates. It, it changes a lot of things. So, it's uh, we'll have to see what the impacts are because some of this heat is kind of unprecedented in how hot it is and how long it is lasting. So we'll have to see what happens, uh, you know, what the effects are out in the landscape. But, you know, it. It uh, a few temperatures hotter overall is a big difference in the water cycle. So Oh, absolutely. You know, and, you know,
0: because of the weather, Uh, the way it is i understand in california now there's a lot of uh uh, major insurance companies who are pulling out because of of the wildfires that are causing so much problems that have been for the last couple years and because of water you know lack of water issues and stuff like that they're just pulling out like the state farm some other ones are are, are pulling out the same thing i just heard a little while ago that that's happening in florida as well
1: yeah and i'm Texas too apparently um you know the truth is that uh it, it's getting to be very expensive uh hurricanes and and wildfires and uh you know it was kind of interesting uh was uh you know well on the wildfires in California thing in California we have a, a state law that these homeowners uh policy writers farmers or whoever, uh, can only look historically at fires uh, to determine the risk and set their rates. They cannot project forward. And so because of that, um, you know, our our wildfires are getting stronger and worse every year, but they can't look at that and project the risk. Uh, they can only look backwards. So that's why uh, farmers and, and these other insurance uh, the insurance companies are going to leave because they can't be profitable. Um, and I don't know exactly what the deal is going down in Florida. I thought it was interesting that the guy, uh, some politician was on there talking about, uh, it's the woke insurance policies is the problem. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's, Woke insurance companies. Is, well, I guess what they're woke to is that uh, there's a lot of hurricanes increasing in strength, doing a lot of damage, and uh, you know, insuring against damage when we we're getting hit with these natural disasters is very difficult to be if, if they charged what the risk really was. It then we'd all be screaming the rates are too high, which we do, by the way. So you know, it's um. Yeah. It, yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, we'll have to see what happens with the whole insurance market. Uh, I did a covered a presentation where they were talking about um, uh, these insurance companies, and you know the whole insurance thing. There's the insurance companies, and then there's the reinsurance companies who kind of like back up all the insurance companies in the world. And the head of that of that guy, uh, head of that. Uh, company or corporation or conglomerate probably he said that in a three degree world you know three up over the industrial rate um, he said that's uninsurable so oh, wow. and we're at 1.5 so I think we're going to continue to see um you know it's going to be harder and harder for the insurance uh you know for the insurance companies to get by if we're going yep. to keep having you know, multi-billion
0: dollar disaster oh absolutely well not not necessarily a disaster but i i was also hearing that there's countless dead trees and plants in las vegas and a lot of that's causing issues and plus some of the new water fees that are going on so i know you know uh, las vegas especially southern nevada water is one of the most progressive water agencies in the country they've done a great job don't get me wrong i I think they have fantastic people Uh, we work with them a lot uh, they, they do a lot of good things to help, uh, you know, continue to have a shining city with, you know, water exhibits and things like that. But, but I guess it's getting way out of hand now, plus with the temperature and they're really cutting back on uh, when you can water and, and that's going to be a big deal. I, I, I'm assuming California is going to push for more of that and, uh, Texas and Florida and all of the Southern, you know, Southern kind of, uh, I'm, yeah, up-west. well, we'll
1: see something certainly in Southern California is going to have to respond. Las Vegas is responding to the fact that the Colorado River is drying up and that is the main source of their water besides groundwater. So they have to figure out how to trim back use even more than they have now. It's amazing how much Las Vegas has grown on such a small water supply and they've done that because they've been like you say, very progressive in a lot of ways, you know, uh, with uh, working with the casinos and the golf courses and, and everything. But when push comes to shove, uh, you know, that Colorado River is, is drying. And even though Las Vegas' share, Nevada's share of the Colorado River is a tiny, 300,000 acre feet, that's like, what, California's is 3.5 or uh, 4.4 million acre feet is color is California's allocation and you know now again go back Las Vegas is uh two hundred thousand or maybe it's three hundred thousand it's either two or three I'm not sure it's tiny but but that's their water supply and so they what they've done is they have uh enacted an overreach fee uh that's I think I read 9 dollars per 1000 gallons that you go over your allocation and and so these are turning into some very steep uh steep water bills and so folks are are upset about that which I, you know, can understand that and apparently, you know, they're not watering outdoors and so you're seeing the effects of of this uh fee that people don't want to pay.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I was trying to get a hold of uh, Pat Mulroy. You remember Pat Mulroy? She was the head oh, of yeah. uh, mm-hmm. Southern Nevada Water. And she's, I guess, over at the uh, University of Las Vegas. Um, and so I left a message for her because I'd looked at She's been on the show before, twice actually, uh, years ago. And we'd to have her back and talk about what's what's going on. Because she's still, even though she's not running the water district, she's got a lot to say. <laughs> it, oh, it, Yeah. And uh, she's a very smart woman, and uh, I think she's, she's done a great job. So we'd love to, love to get her back. I hear also uh, that the Californ- California budget deals has delivered a major setback in the Delta Water Tom. So maybe you can expand to our audience what that's about.
1: Well, yeah, uh, Newsom uh, was trying to, you know, he was pushing a bill to uh, to streamline the our environmental rules are, it's called CEQA. And there's this uh, environmental review that's required for projects of all kinds, infrastructure, housing, whatever you name it. So he was trying to streamline the CEQA. And uh, CEQA is more than just water projects. Again, it's everything. And so, um, and he's trying to put this through on a budget deal on what's called a trailer bill, which is a... Uh, a bill that doesn't have go through the same public process as other bills do, uh, so it's it's kind of a controversial way to go about it. And it was um, it was a little bit surprising. I thought that he would think that uh, a, such a controversial project could be like put through on a budget trailer bill. And he was very open that it was in there, and that's what he was going to do uh now in the end uh there was quite the uproar and so Newsom backed down from the tunnels but uh it was to me it was interesting that uh he he would try to move a controversial project like that now politico has a newsletter that they put out that that had a very interesting clip about that they said um uh he, he likes to play poker is the way he put it and uh his he wasn't ever fully intending that the the tunnels would stay in he knew that he'd have to take them out but it would give a good uh, a it would give him a grand gesture to make to the environmentalists was my take on what they mm. were saying so i thought that was interesting because like i said i didn't understand why he would try and move a such a controversial project in, in that way, so maybe that was never his intention. Uh, you know, he's never been big on the tunnels. He's certainly, you know, says mentioned them occasionally, and he has seemingly supports them, but um, it is not uh, anything like what we saw within the Jerry Brown days and the Arnold Schwarzenegger days. It's kind of funny how the press puts that moniker up, Newsom's Tunnels, but but he doesn't really talk about them much. And they're really not his tunnels. And really, yeah. they're, they, you could say they were Brown's tunnels, but the Brown's not there anymore. And if you really want to get to the Genesis, then was really uh, Governor Schwarzenegger, who, you know, water in California was always kind of like what they referred to as the third rail politically, and so after the whole peripheral canal, which is the precursor to the Delta Conveyance Project, after that was voted down by ballot in the state, rejected 98% to two. Uh, When when have you ever seen any ballot measure on election night uh, be be like that? It, It was incredible. So people didn't talk about anything water for many years. And then uh, Schwarzenegger uh, became the governor, and he decided that he was going to try and do something about water. And so the Bay Delta Conservation Plan was formed, and that is the genesis, uh, the beginning of what is now the Delta Conveyance Project. And it has changed over the years from, it was going to be a canal in the beginning and then it's from the canal they went to two tunnels, and now from two tunnels, they're down to yeah. one tunnel. Yeah. Oh, it's like
0: it's like the uh, the the, 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 the um, high speed train to nowhere, you know. Has been going on for 20 years. You, know? <laughs> you don't hear much about that anymore. There's no PR on that anymore. But you know one of the brighter brighter sides of the water I, I hear is that the DWR stored a bunch more water uh because of the record breaking snowpacks that we had over the past couple of months so that's yeah
1: we certainly we did pretty good i mean they the state water project uh which is one of the two major sit uh systems in the state captured like three point five million acre feet uh and uh full allocations everyone gets a full allocation that's it's you know that's about four million acre feet so this it's kind of uh, you know it's it's very rare that they get this much water to distribute. Um, yeah, said the first time hundred percent allocation since two thousand and six, and they did a lot of work getting uh, water into the groundwater uh, basins. I think the Sacramento Bee said enough water for eleven million households for a year. Um, I, you know, uh, I'm not sure how exactly what that trans... Oh, I'm looking at the article here. 92,000 acre-feet, uh, went into groundwater storage, so that's pretty good. And, um, and they were able to kind of move the water off the, you know, and stop some of the flooding at Tulare Lake, so I think they've done a pretty decent job this year with the bounty that we had. Of course, we can always do better. Um, you know, I, yep. there were there were some you know barriers of sorts in in getting the government stuff, permits, and everything to work as planned. But uh, but we did we did make great progress this
0: year. Oh, that's good. We need some great news. On the other side of that, uh, I, I see that there's uh, really extreme levels of toxic waste and lead, actually, in Lake Tahoe's Emerald Bay. Oh. I think they're trying to blame. Can you give us some background on that? Because I understand at oh. is a suspect in that thing.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, the Wall Street Journal ran a big story earlier, I think it was last week, on these uh, toxic, these lead cables, you know, that were laid down back, I don't know, back when we were laying down cable to for telecommunications things. And they don't use them anymore, but they haven't removed them from the landscape. So uh, they did a big expose on it. And they the, the Wall Street Journal really focused on uh, a lot of these cables in other areas. Um, but it did mention Lake Tahoe. But yeah. uh, the California Sport Fishing uh, Alliance sued... Uh, AT&T and they had agreed to go in and take the the lead cables out. Um that was sort of the 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 settlement for the uh for for that lawsuit. And so they were scheduled to go in and take them out, but after the Wall Street Journal ran this big this big thing, they uh they said no, now they're going to work with regulators. And they say that the the these cables don't pose the threat that, you know, that the Wall Street Journal and the CSPA, uh, you know, allege that they do. Um, but yeah, we, we do have lead cables in a place like Lake Tahoe, um, in Emerald Bay, of all the places. So, you know, um, hopefully we'll get that project back on track and get them out of there.
0: So. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be an expensive project for AT and T. So probably more than the insurance. Well, insurance
1: he, yeah, but you know, we shouldn't have we shouldn't have things just rotting in our waterways <laughs> like that. You know.
0: Totally, totally agree. Well, Chris, we we thank you very much for joining. Uh, I wish uh, Mr. Davy was here as well to jump in and contribute, but I'm sure while he's out there, he's probably checking all things to do with water and products and. Maybe some beer. <laughs> he likes that. Uh, so anyway, but for our listeners, please go to uh, www.mavensnotebook.com. I'm telling you, Chris works day and night, to, and I don't know how, I don't know how many hours you must not sleep a night. It's, of all the stuff that you produce on a daily basis, I mean, you've probably got an hour's worth of sleep every day, but it's a great place to get uh, information about water news every single day to your, to your PC, and uh, it, it just, it's just a good thing. So if you want to, be a, a subscriber go to www as I said uh, Com, and you can even become a, a, a sponsor of that and that's a great thing to do and uh, and that helps Chris out a lot so Chris we thank you very much stay cool out there in central California I'm going to try to do the same here and we will talk to you next week I will be gone next week but uh, Chris will be back and he'll he'll fill in for me and then the week after we'll be both both on the show along with you so Chris have a wonderful weekend and uh, enjoy enjoy the enjoy the time. Okay. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. All right, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with our featured guests. And uh, it's going to be a pretty uh, interesting conversation about water in 2050. What that's going to be like. So stick around. We'll be right
2: back. KCAA, Loma Linda. Legacy KCAA 1050 AM and Express 106.5 FM. Moving up in this industry means getting the most out of each day, so you can focus on growing your business. With Site One, you're in control, and we're here to help. It starts with the right team. Our irrigation pros can help map out a complete, streamlined system that meet any requirements or regulations and from the first dig to years after install. Knowledgeable experts are available in branch or resources are available online to help find solutions specific to your needs. Next, we make sure you have the right tools to get the job done with the largest selection of top brands in the industry, bringing the latest in Wi-Fi enabled controllers, rotors, sprays, valves, and drip components. And because hard work should always be rewarded, you'll receive personalized pricing and earn loyalty points on qualifying purchases to help you grow. You're in control. Site One is here to help. Water is one of the biggest expenses for communities, HOAs, universities, golf courses, and resorts. So keeping those costs under control, especially when rates are increasing while water supplies are being reduced, are often essential to a customer's survival. Managing water requires multiple skills, which is why it's been complicated and difficult, until now. AquaTrack brings multiple skills and technologies together to help large system users conserve outdoor water and improve the health of their landscapes. AquaTrack's professionals are certified landscape water managers and certified landscape irrigation auditors. The company offers audit services, upgrade advice, technical expertise, and water use monitoring. We already manage irrigation water for the largest homeowner associations in Arizona, and we're prepared to bring our knowledge and experience to help others, including landscapers and designers. Give us a call and hear how AquaTrack saved one HOA some 430 million gallons of water and $200,000 in annual water expenses. AquaTrack is Arizona-based, and you can reach us at 623-594-8689, that's 623 623-
3: 594-8689. This is KCAA.
0: All right, uh, welcome back to the second half of the Hill Show. Here's some friends of ours coming on to talk about the they're future thinkers and we need to have those things you know, what's it gonna be like in 2050? What's gonna be the status of water and how should we look at that? So we have Travis Loop, who's a good friend of ours, and uh, David LaFrance, who's the uh, the president of the American Water Works Association. He's gonna have two of his uh, distinguished staff on, and they're gonna talk about that. So it's a pretty interesting conversation. So uh, let's take a listen.
4: What will water look like in the year 2050? I'm here at the Reservoir Center in Washington, D.C where a group of water professionals are gathered to explore that question. They're considering the factors that will influence the future of water. They're thinking about how the water industry can plan and act to shape that future. I'm talking to some of these water experts to get their ideas and expertise on Water 2050. Let's listen to those conversations. I will be speaking with David LaFrance, Joe Giacangelo, and Shiho Sham of the American Water Works Association. Water 2050, could you talk about this kind of
5: envisioning that you're doing? What What's the purpose of this? Why are you doing it? I've never really thought that waiting for the future to come to us was the right strategy when you can actually sort of steer your way to a future. So that was the beginnings. We just sat down, had a conversation, posed the question of our five-year plans the right sort of way to go, and we thought, we need to extend that out to the year 2050.
4: It seems like we're at a pivotal, a little pivotal time for water, right? With heightened public awareness, uh, an influx of investment into water, some different kind of challenges, this post-pandemic world. So it seems like a, the right time to kind of reset a little bit.
5: Yeah, absolutely true. There are a lot of dynamics, a lot of new things that are happening for water. And, and so this is really the right time to take all that bundle it up and think okay how will this drive us into the future and if the future that we see from that is something we want to make a little bit better then we should start now because if you know you plant the seed the tree will grow and it will take some time do you think the water sector is able to have that mindset
4: you know as a whole to to look beyond the day-to-day operations of providing clean water and plan 30 years out, try
3: to turn a ship, if you will, uh, you know, that, that far out. Well, you bring up a good question. For many, that is a challenge. It's, it's hard because we're all enmeshed in our day to day activities and our short range, uh, duties and, and activities and planning. And so to really reach out and what we often find that it's, it's difficult to be able to say, okay, what will really 2050 look like? So when we do these think tanks, I always start off by saying, I would like everyone to think about what I call the art of the impossible. And I say, don't think about what is possible. What is possible we're going to do? Think about what is impossible. Because in 2050, what we think is impossible today, we are going to and have to be able to achieve again if we're going to meet a sustainable water future. So I always uh, uh, reiterate to them, that's too possible give me something that's impossible, and then let's start from there.
4: I love that, push, push the envelope and right? Because it's gonna be a whole new world in, in 30 years, that's for sure.
6: With the way technology's going, it's gonna be a whole new world in three years. So the, the water community, whether it's drinking water or wastewater, we tend to be very reactive, rather be proactive. When there's a problem, we'll go and try to solve that problem. And so if it's continue to do it that way, then I kind of say like, we end up always chasing our own tail. So it's, it's not a good approach. You know, can we be a little bit more foresight? And then especially now with, you know, with uh, Joe being the president, I'm, now I'm the uh, immediate past president, but this whole idea started in uh, 2021. Mm. And uh, so we say, let, let's see whether we can push the agenda a little bit to get people to become more forward thinking and incorporating also other community within this, uh, uh, this exercise. And so, you know, we, that's part of the reason why we have these think tanks. And these think tanks, not just people within the water community, it's also people outside the water community, whether it's planner, whether folks that are dealing with technology, a big corporations. so we want their point of view. And so I think we can learn from each other a lot. So I, I think that's kind of how it's all gets started. We really don't know what 2050 will look like. You know, like I'm a big sci-fi fan. Mm-hmm. So is that, is that like Waterworld? Is that Magmax? Max? Or is that like Star Trek? I don't know. You know What would that, would that be? be the three, oh, yeah, it could be. <laughs> so I think to me is that let's just figure out like what is driving us. And then so let's look, look at those issues. Like can we alter some of the pathway? Because I also think is that instead of for all these other drivers pushing us forward, if we can understand what these drivers are, Maybe we can chart our own course. Some of the drivers that
4: you're looking at, could you talk about the, the areas that you're drilling down on that you think are going to be the real agents of change uh, for, for the water industry?
3: Let me just briefly go over the five drivers very quickly. And I only say that I want to uh, mention the five is only because they're all interlinked. You really can't separate them out um, because one will influence the other, which will influence the other, et cetera. So if we begin with sustainability, that's the key driver. And sustainability, as we know, is what's important, uh, for the future in order to have a secure future for, uh, for our water community. To get there, we're going to need technology. Okay. And we're going to have to have technology that we're not thinking about today. Again, the impossible. We're thinking about technology 30 years from now. Remember, 30 years ago, we weren't thinking about having cell phones with, uh, with, uh, uh, that we could speak to and, and, and have social media. So we're going to need that kind of technology. But also we're going to need uh, a governance, we're going to be able to, how are we going to govern a sustainable future that's driven by technology. And so the way we look at governance will probably, again, not be like we look at today. There'll be new ways in which we can think about how would we govern that future. Um, and then economics plays into all this because the bottom line is we need to begin to a- able to uh, finance what we're going to do and really uh, uh, be able to finance the true cost of water, not the cost of water that we're receiving today, which is has a lot to do with delayed maintenance, et cetera. And then finally, social demographics plays a key role. We need to be acutely aware of disadvantaged communities to be sure that we are not biasing what we develop in Water 2050 towards one group or another. But we do pay attention to the complete social demographic atmosphere. And to go into social demographics is really my mind, more depth is my mind, is the key to why 2050 is occurring. Why we're going to have these challenges all comes down to demographics. And I say that for a couple of reasons. If there were 3 billion people on the earth today, we wouldn't be talking right now. But we have almost 7 billion or so people on the earth. And by 2050, that's going to approach over 10, 9 to 10 billion. It's not sustainable. Our water supplies are not sustainable in the way we use them today. And so demographics is driving everything going forward so we have to be able to adapt what we're going to do to the populations of where they are and how many people are in in those various areas I wanted to dig into that that idea of
4: understanding the driver the value of that and what you can do with it so if you know what the pressures are what's pushing on you how it's gonna push on you you can then decide how to react or how to get ahead of that pressure. Is that the idea?
6: That's, that's the idea, you know, like I mentioned earlier on, you know, population. We know population is growing, right? And so, and because of population, we we need more natural resources. And so natural resources, we extract resources, including water resources. And so what we need to start thinking about, this extraction, is it unlimited? It's clearly not. So if it's not unlimited, how do we go about to make adjustment to make sure that the finite resource could be utilized efficiently, effectively, and then you know, can continue to support our population into the future? Um, so, you know, that's one of the things that uh, probably either David or Joe have talked about. We talked about circular economy. Instead of doing all linear economy, you know, you extract resource, treat it, use it, treat it again and dispose it can we, instead of disposing it, bring it back into the process? And so in that case, we can continue to use that resource and until it completely got exhausted, then then we can now bring in more new resources. And that's really the
4: sustainability driver, sustainability right? Like drive. to to be able to be sustainable uh we ha- we have to be circular in how we use resources
6: you know we, we can also you know think about like you know the Elon Musk or the Jeff Bezos we can go to Mars you know go to another planet right you know it's like is that the solution or can we have better solution than being on planet earth it, it seems like we might be going both paths <laughs> it could be you know that, that we we want options yeah. right we want the portfolio to be wide enough that we can see what is the most effective way.
4: What else about the sustainability driver uh, jumps out to you? Well,
6: you know, I also think about it's about our future, about our future generation. You know, I, all, I mean, a lot of us have kids. So we want to see well, what they're going to be uh, dealing with. And so I, I think, you know, the only sustainability, what I do see is that, you know, we need to just manage these tools better. I mean, of course, different people can, different way of defining what sustainability is. Mm. And then, of course, if I, if I'm the one that look at it, is that I want to take a system approach, you know, input, is that input always greater than output? Well, then is that sustainable? Right. So that's something that we need to sort of think about. And then, so, you know, maybe on a small scale, it is on a larger scale. It might not be. So I think that's also not the whole thinking is that we need to a little bit more holistic, you know, instead of just slow pipe. And I, all, I also a feel is that with our education system, we become specialists. We're so specialized and we all have our own own little stovepipe that we only see that boundary, we don't see, what you do actually affects something else. And even think about the driver. That's always, always tell people all these driver interlink. What about in the water space? Do you think
4: that people are stovepiped within water and, uh, and that that, and that that needs to break down a little I bit? I think it should
6: because, you know, I, I view is that like we, we talk like right. one water, right? Right. It should, we should think about water as a, uh, as a whole, as a total resource that whether it's drinking water, wastewater, reuse or storm water, we should have them all together. It's really kind. Of- I love. Before we hit record, you said you're a
4: hydrologist. Yes. Of course, it's one water.
6: <laughs> it is one water, exactly. Yeah, and and it's finite. You know, like apart from um you know a, a volcanic eruption, we don't regenerate too much new water. Like maybe in the future we use technology, you know, combine hydrogen and oxygen, and we can generate new water. But but by and large, you know, it is finite. I want to ask you about sustainability, though. Uh,
4: because I think this is an area you really work in a lot. Um, could you talk more about why that's a driver, why that's going to be important to address, and maybe even what sustainability might look like 30 years from now?
3: Obviously, if we don't have sustainable water supplies, we won't have water. So we have to develop a methodology in which we can become uh, uh, a water sustainable community, a water that is secure for all. So the driver for that sustainability is key, but the question becomes is how do we get there? Or why do we need to get there? And how we get there is really comes down in my mind to begin to think about uh, a circular economy. And we, we water is just one part of that circular economy. But if you look back at a little bit of the history, we've developed the, uh, in, in, in North America, United States, we've developed our industrial prowess on the backs of the environment, on the back of the environment. We've taken materials out of the environment, we use them, and then we discharge them back into the environment in another form, often which is deleterious to that particular environment and even to health. So our economy was strictly linear but it's a finite resource. We cannot continue just to extract, use, and discharge. So what we need to do is reuse. And we need to, instead of a linear economy, we need to circularize that economy so that we're taking uh, um, resources that are reused and putting, using them and then putting those products back into it, into the economy, and as a result, it becomes completely circular in the ideal we wouldn't be uh, going to the environment for, well, we could be going for very little back to the environment. So what does this play into water? We're not doing, we're doing a pretty good job in terms of reusing water. We have great precedent of going circular. If you look at what's going on in California and, and even almost the Sunbelt, we're going to completely using almost all the water that we extract. And that's actually closing the loop or helping us close the loop on on the circularity of, of the economy and of water systems. But we've got a lot more to do because if you look at wastewater, a wastewater treatment plant, for example, yeah, we, 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 we can reuse the water, but there are a ton of other resources that need to be extracted from that process.
4: I've heard a lot about how many different resources there actually are in wastewater. Um, and people don't realize that, that there's, there's so many different valuable elements
3: in there. No, you're absolutely correct. Nitrogen, phosphorus, metals, um, et cetera. But perhaps the most important one is energy. Uh, we generate. We can generate a lot of energy from the carbon in the wastewater, uh, as well as when we go through the process. We have what's called the digestive digestion, which generates a lot of heat uh, that can be used ultimately as, uh, for the production of energy. So that's a that's a key. But our challenge is is to put it back into the economy, it has to be cost effective. Because uh, we we won't, people won't use it, people won't buy it, industry won't use it unless it is competitive with what they can ext- extract out from the environment. And so that's our challenge going forward. You mentioned
4: water reuse. This is one of my favorite topics. Uh, and I, I'm just really curious, like, what might water reuse look like in, in 2050? Uh, or what, could it look like in in an optimal sense, if we were able to really implement and expand it?
3: Well, I'll make it very short in a sense. We're using less than 10% of the available wastewater that we generate in this country. 2050, I'd like to see that close to well over 90% of reusing the water. So everything that's wasted gets reused, even in areas that are water rich. I think we're going to see water being reused. Because even in those water rich areas, because of climate change, some will, uh, some areas will have decreased water use. We know that's happened in many places around the world. Um, so as a result, we're going to be driven to more and more of reuse of, uh, or recycling of water. Many states are doing a great job. Florida is the largest producer of reused water in the country. Uh, and they're, they're producing on the order of eight, nine hundred million gallons per day. They get plenty of rain. And they get plenty of rain.
4: Yeah, they've got other incentives to to reuse their water,
5: right? Technology, uh, both in IT and other forms of technology, is really taking over in the water space. And we see them being bigger players in uh, leadership, in executive leadership, in driving the directions in which we're going to go. Um, And so what's intriguing there is how much efficiency we can have through technology, how much we can advance the science of providing safe water and then clean water to return back to nature. All of that's really, I think, very powerful. At the same time, it's opening up new doors that uh, send off some concern that we have to plan for. Things things related to cybersecurity, I think, is really important. And also things related to um, original knowledge, I think, is important. So when we think about the fact that people go out now to say Wikipedia, uh, a product or a technology product that no one trusted when it first came out, and suddenly now today, it is the source of knowledge, and sorry Encyclopedia Britannica, but people of past generations don't know who you are. Yeah, you're going to the recycling bin. Exactly, exactly. We used to have it on the shelf at my house and we'd pull it out and I'd do my my assignments using that. Um, So, now the question is, as people go out to whatever, the Internet of Things, to find out knowledge, if water doesn't have its knowledge out there, people can't find it. So the risks are, if we don't get the right information out, if we don't have the information out in the trusted, authoritative places then the wrong information gets picked up one
4: phrase you used that jumped out you said taking hold technology kind of taking hold i know that in the water space we've talked about tech and data too for like a long time right gotta gotta collect more data gotta pay attention to this and technology but now we're at this moment where like you said it's kind of taking hold and becoming more part of daily practice right uh And then the speed of change with technology is still on that exponential curve, right? And we're just in this rapid uh, evolution. So I think some of those things are opportunities, but that's also the scary part too. It's like, how do we manage all this?
5: Right. I mean, when I think back about my life as a water professional, and when I tell this story of my first day, uh, at a large consulting firm, CH2M Hill. I literally had a desk in, an, in the hallway with a, fi- a 10 key and a le- piece of ledger paper. There was no computer. There was no cell phone. Oh, there was a dial phone. But <laughs> right. that, you know, so, so um, even in that period of time, our dependency on technology, you wouldn't even think about not having a laptop let alone a big mainframe sort of thing to use your do your work now it's these are just all tools of the trade and so that's going to continue on in advance and i just see the technology leaders becoming the water leaders and and it's a big it's not that in, all the other professions are going to change in any way it's just there's a new new group helping to lead in the team
4: okay so tech is really going to come to the center of the daily work of the water sector
5: yeah they're not uh, the technology leaders are no are you know in in a water utility or in a consulting firm they used to be the support and and now they're the business um enablers and so I, i really see that as an important part and that's why you see so much focus on the incubators and on uh, the exhibit floors of the technology p-
4: technology people. So I know that your day job is really focused on technology. Uh, technology is changing just at an exponential rate. It seems like we're at this uh, real pivotal point, if you will, uh, What's your sense on why this is a driver for water and and how it's going to be over the next 30 years?
3: Well, um, technology, as I mentioned, will be necessary in order to achieve, ultimately, water sustainability. It's gonna be, in in a sense, the the backbone of sustainability in many respects. Uh, And uh, in order to get there, what we're gonna see is an evolution of various different types of technology that make it much more Cost effective, uh, easier, less, less, uh, labor intensive to be able to produce clean water that can be, um, provided to our, our water community. Uh, and I envision, I envision, uh, a time when it'll, it'll, we'll be going into our homes and we'll have a little readout that comes and says, this is our water quality today. Uh, it's, uh, where we're gonna be able to see whether it's good, uh, you'll have a little, um, a little readout that says good not so good or, or or call your call your water uh utility but i think what we'll also see is uh the use of ai and or artificial intelligence as well as machine learning um, to be able to get data from people's taps drive it back to a centralized system, and then apply predictive analytics. So we'll be able to predict what the water quality that comes out of that tap at any one time, and that will only increase consumer confidence, which is absolutely key, and also provide a product which is of higher quality as well as an affordable cost. All right, I'm waiting for that for that little readout at my house. I,
4: I've been, that's something I'm always like, why, why don't I have that on my faucet? Just, you know, tells me what's going on, what the chemistry is in real time. I think that'd be so cool. Um, we'll get there, we'll get there. Um, what has to happen for the water sector to really, uh, adapt and harness this technology, though? You know, like the technology will develop. What does the water sector have to do to, to be able to embrace that and, and incorporate it?
3: I think there has to be, this, this leads into some of the other drivers. I think there has to be, uh, when we talk about governance, there has to be a more uniform methodology of which we can, uh, uh, develop technologies and have them accepted, at least in, in the United States, by many, many of the, um, of the agencies which govern the, the regulations of, of states, as opposed to every state acting individually. And there are reasons for that, which I won't go into now. But those are the kinds of things that I think that are going to help the development of technology. We need more utilities that are willing to be, uh, early, early adopters of technology. So as technology develops, Instead of uh, a 10- or 15-year time frame from concept all the way through to seeing something that's actually put in the ground, we need to have that early adoption or that, that te- te- technology development curve compressed to maybe a couple of years. So I think we're going to see – we need to see more of that. And as the water challenges become more um, salient, we're going to see technology being much more uh, uh, acceptable to be employed. But even on governance
6: – and, and governance is tied directly to economics. You just think about, you know, capitalism, democracy, and then, you know, people, of course, you know, have their view of what socialism is all about. But what we need to sort of start thinking about is that everything needs to be operated on an individual level, or do we want to start looking at a community level? So, you know, those are all interlinked. So I see is that that's some, that should be having a healthy discussion. How would that apply to the water space, That that, well, I think you know, you probably hear about like if you go to the United Nations, there's a lot of argument that you know water is a human right. Mm-hmm. Right. So you know, that's it's put pushing toward like more the socialist uh point of view. And I and I think that, you know, we need water because my line to folks is that well, energy we have alternative energy. What is the alternative to water? Hmm. So? There yeah, there is no. Beer? Well, you
4: still need water to make beer. So maybe some of the governance change uh is the idea that gets at equity affordability making making sure that everyone has has equal access to clean reliable water and sanitation
6: that's right yeah because it's for your survival and so you know that those are the, some of the questions that also link to economics you know how do we go about to afford you know water for for consumption because you know with all the contamination you know sort of flavor of the day you know pfas and, you know, like, wow, we need to treat it. Well, who's responsible for it? And how do we go about to do that? And if you talk about subsidy, well, then then it's free money from somewhere. Someone has to pay for it.
4: Which other driver or two jumps out at you as being especially intriguing?
6: So the
5: last one that we're going to do, we we branded it uh, social and demographic. And so social. the social aspect I see, we haven't had this one yet, but I see it Um, really focusing in on some of the um, affordability issues and the social equity uh, issues Uh, and then the demographics really water's always been about demographics where are people and where is water and how do they get connected and early on i talked about how this this all started after the pandemic well i guess we're still in the tailwaters of the pandemic but um after the the intense part Um, and what I'm seeing is people now uh, don't have to come to a center place of work you can work remotely Uh, that is a positive thing that's come out of the pandemic and you can pretty much be where you want to be and so I would think that and we're seeing it in some places but I would think there might be more and more people going to places where they want to be as opposed to where they have to be for their work and taking their work where they want to be. As I
4: say, you saw, you know, the big cities lost population as people went to more rural areas or moved to the south or kind of, definitely we saw that happening the past few years.
5: Yeah, when I talk to my friends in Bozeman, that's what's happening to Bozeman, right? People are coming to Bozeman. And so I think that if that happens at a magnitude where the big urban centers, right? We no longer have urbanization, but we have sort of ruralization. The rural areas won't be ready. And then the urban centers will be over capacity. Now, will it be that magnitude? I don't know. But I think we'll see some shifting of how people, uh, how people do their work and where people do their work. And certainly over
4: multiple decades, like you're talking about, you could have pretty good changes over that amount of time.
5: Yeah, you're bringing up a good point. I've I've, I've failed to sort of say that this trend in where we are changes how water systems are uh, built and operated. So that's an important. That's really why this is such an interesting thing to me is what does that mean, that change mean for water?
4: The, The social driver part that you mentioned, that's also something like technology has really ramped up the past few years. We're at this pivotal time. It seems that has also happened with some of the social elements too, right? With equity, with affordability, with environmental justice, those have become like a lot stronger drivers for water and probably will maintain that. (laughs) Yeah. uh,
5: The important piece I think is the visibility of it has really increased Mm -hmm. the awareness of it and and people are putting it um, into their planning, into their thought processes, into their operations. And and that's a really good thing. Everybody wants everyone to have access to water, to safe water, and everyone wants to protect the environment, but it really doesn't work unless everyone has that. So it's a great, it's a great time for the water community, and it's also helping to attract great talent into the water community.
0: All right. Well, interesting conversation of what people think the future is gonna be in 2050. But you know, just for everybody, you know, July is typically the month of peak water demand for landscapes all over the country. And the Irrigation Association named July Smart Irrigation Month to increase awareness about simple practices and innovative technologies for both homeowners and commercial property owners. And if you follow three three simple tips, that it can kind of help you get to where you need to be. One, turn on your irrigation system and walk around the yard to look for emitters, sprinkler heads that are broken, clogged, or mislined. Just like your car, you got to do maintenance to your car. You got to change the air filter, the uh, oil filter, the gas filter. Got to make sure the tires got the right pressure. All those things similarly, as far as the same activities, you got to do for for uh, uh, irrigation. You know, you install a water sensitive label, smart irrigation controller that uses local weather information and and the site conditions on your property.
2: KCAA, Loma Linda. The Legacy KCAA 1050
6: AM and Express 106.5 FM.